chapter 19 of the book of Matthew. So I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to start by pointing out that this is a really, really, really touchy subject. And uh, I'm going to say that I hope I don't step on anybody's toes this morning. Um, This is perhaps the downside of preaching through Scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, Today's passage deals with the topic of divorce. And I can tell you, looking around the room, pretty much everybody in here has been touched by divorce in one way, shape, form, or another. So, um, there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of bad teaching that has gone on in the church, there's a lot of uh, lack of mercy that has gone on in the church, and uh, as we pray this morning, let's let's uh, pray for uh, God to help us deal with this particular passage in a way that honors Him. How's that sound? All right, good, because I'll tell you, when I opened up when I opened up the scripture and I started copying the, the, the passage into my Word document for writing out my notes this week, I went, Eeh! I don't get the option to not preach just because I don't like it. So please, let's, uh, let's all stand and pray this morning. Or read first, then we'll pray. That's what we do. See? It's got me all confused. Chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, as we have already said this morning, this is a sensitive subject because we, just like your people Israel, have sinned. We we have sin in our lives. We have made those decisions that have caused us to go away from your will. Father, I pray this morning that we would view your word in a way that honors you this morning, that we would be faithful, that we would understand that this is your word and not ours. And Father, I pray that we would learn and we would become conformed to the image of Jesus by what we read today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So the easy part, verses 1 and 2, 
uh, Jesus moves his ministry from Galilee to Judea. All right, now all of the stuff that he's been doing so far, I mean, he, he showed up in Jerusalem for a little bit when he was baptized by John, but then he immediately went north into Galilee, and that's where he spent the most, uh, the larger part of his ministry. Here we're told that he moves to Judea beyond the Jordan, uh, which, you know, it'd be really great if Matthew told us what that meant, right? Beyond the Jordan. What, what are we talking about? Well, in Hebrew terms, if the writer was in Jerusalem and they wrote beyond the Jordan, then they were talking about the area east of the Jordan River. But if the writer was somewhere east of the Jordan River and they said beyond the Jordan, then they were talking about something west of the Jordan River. So it really depends on where the author is sitting when they write it. In this case, where Jesus was was most likely in Galilee on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So when he went to Judea, he crossed Beyond the Jordan, he crossed over to the western side to the area of Judea. And he, as he's doing this, he's moving towards Jerusalem. Now, you remember, he's already told the disciples twice what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's already told them on two separate occasions where he's going to be turned over to the authorities. He's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. And the first time, Peter gets into an argument with him and says, no, you're not. So Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, right? Because that's not God's will for me to survive this. And then the second time, the disciples don't really say anything about it, but you can tell they're still not bought into this idea. I don't blame them. I wouldn't have been either. Okay? So during this part of his ministry, this is where Jesus really starts to have some hard encounters with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, he's he's been dealing with them a little bit up in Galilee, but here is where he's going to start running headfirst into the bad teaching of the religious people in and around the capital of Judea. So, Jesus moves his ministry down to Judea, and large crowds follow him. Everywhere Jesus went, people showed up. Let me ask you a question about your life. Since we are supposed to be Christ-like, right? That's what Christian means, is little Christ. Do people show up everywhere that you go? That's a hard question, isn't it? Because everywhere Jesus went, people showed up. People showed up because they needed healing. People showed up because they needed salvation. But if people don't show up where we are, then we got to really ask the question, are we showing Jesus to the people that are around us? Hmm. I'll just let you all stew on that for a while. And I thought it was the other part I was going to step on toes. All right, so um, Jesus, Jesus is teaching and he's healing people from their sicknesses. And this catches the attention of the Pharisees. I really don't know what was going on in Judea at this time. I went and looked at a couple of different commentaries and a couple of different you know, historical perspectives and stuff. I really don't know why this was the question they chose to use to test Jesus. 
other than the fact that this was a topic that was being debated in Jerusalem at the time. So apparently they thought, since Jesus is this up-and-coming rabbi, we're going to use this and see where he falls on the position. Okay? So they come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful, is it legal to divorce your wife for any reason? Now, pause button. All of this is written from the perspective of a husband divorcing the wife. There was no legal standing in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or Galilee, or pretty much anywhere else in the ancient world, for a wife to divorce a husband. There was no provision for that. Okay? Chalk it up to the inequalities of the ancient world. So this is all from the perspective of the husband divorcing a wife. And they ask the question, is it lawful to do this for any cause? Now, what does any cause sound like? Yeah, sounds like no-fault divorce, right? Welcome to the United States. So, the root of this debate appears to come from the teaching of a rabbi whose name was Hillel, and he read Deuteronomy chapter 24 in a very liberal way. Now let me read Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, dot, dot, dot. Okay? So so can you see where he's reading this very liberally? She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The, the word there that Hillel is interpreting is that word that we have translated as indecency. He understood it to mean anything displeasing to the husband. She burns a toast at breakfast time. She doesn't fold his laundry correctly. She, she, pick, pick a fault. Okay? That was Hillel's interpretation. Now, on the other hand, there was an ultra conservative. So, you've got the, you've got the super left wing liberal interpretation. Indecency means anything that you don't like is sufficient grounds for divorce. And then you have this guy over here who's the ultra-conservative, right? He's over here on the far right wing. And he says, no, historically and linguistically, that word indecency only means some kind of sexual immorality. Period. That's it. That's all, nothing else. And that is the only permissible reason for divorce. So these two different camps are arguing. Now, could you guess which side the Pharisees probably fell on? You might be surprised. You might be surprised. Because remember, the Pharisees were the guys who were concerned with violating the letter of God's law, not the spirit of God's law. I don't know whether they fell on the ultra-conservative or the ultra-liberal side. 
I have a feeling that they probably fell over here on the liberal side. Because as long as they could say that the, the letter of God's law was that for indecency you could divorce your wife, you're good. That's just a guess. Now, Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, he was probably over on the other end. So there's even factions within the Pharisees. Both of these positions come from an honest and earnest desire to read and understand Scripture. Let me say that again. Both of these positions come from an honest and earnest desire to understand Scripture. When we approach God's Word, no matter how honestly and how earnestly we want to understand what it says, what we have to remember is we are bringing our sinfulness into our understanding of the Word. The law of Moses was given to people who were sinners. Right? Okay. Which is why I love Jesus' answer so much, because he went somewhere before man was sinners. When he gives his answer, he pulls it from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Where in God's word is the fall recorded? Genesis chapter 3. So Jesus' answer comes from that period before Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus' answer goes beyond culture. It goes beyond law, and it goes to the created order. A man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God's design for marriage is for two people to join together and become one person. The hardest people to convince of this fact is our children. Right? Check it out. Here's how this works. Dad, can I do... Did you ask your mother? Yeah. What did she say? She said no. Then why are you asking me? We're the same person. Even when she and I disagree about something, we don't do it in front of the kids. We present a united front. Right? We are one person. Together. In union. That is the picture that God had in mind when he designed man and woman. Now, that was before sin entered the world. So, let me read this here and, and kind of summarize where we're at now. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, No. It's not God's plan. He didn't say anything about lawful. He said it's not God's plan. It's not right. Whether it's lawful or not is of no consequence. The legality that the state or anybody else stamps on an action is not 
the question. The right question is, what is God's will? Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. There's a lot of shoulds here. (laughs) Nobody should come between husband and wife. Not parents, not children, not other women, not other men, not work, not vacations, not addictions. Nothing should enter into the space between husband and wife. They're one flesh. That's a should. That's a should. And that's why. And the Pharisees are not stupid. They understood this because they asked the question, why did Moses command somebody to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? There's a problem with their question. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate? It's like Moses said, okay, here's the rules for marriage. And then when you're tired of her, give her a certificate of divorce. It's not what he said. He did not say you must. The whole passage basically says, and I'm just summarizing it here, if you find impurity in your wife, you may divorce her with a certificate of divorce and send her away. But then if you continue on with the passage, which is something the Pharisees weren't necessarily concerned with doing, If she remarries and then gets divorced again or becomes a widow, it would be unlawful for that first husband to remarry her as though she were a piece of property to be acquired and discarded at will. At what point in that did Moses command a certificate of divorce? He didn't. He gave it as a last-ditch option if you find impurity in your wife. But in the rest of the passage, there is a protection for the woman. Now, why would Moses do this? Why would he even allow for this if it's not God's plan, if that wasn't God's design? Why would he even say that you can do this legally? Exactly. Because of the hardness of men's hearts, the man, and, and, and I'm speaking as a man here, okay? I'm, I'm not so enlightened as to deny our basic nature. We are creatures of use. We are utilitarian creatures, right? If I have something at my house and I don't see a use for it, I'm probably not going to keep it around. And humanity being what it is, you find that woman who's beautiful and she catches your eye and she's pure and you marry her and you spend, oh, I don't know, six, seven weeks together and you realize you can't stand the way she laughs, you can't stand the way she cooks, you can't stand the way she chews her food, out. Because that's what we would do. That's sinful man. Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce to protect the woman. Because the certificate of divorce doesn't just say, I'm kicking you to the curb, get out. It provided for things like 
spousal support. Alimony. Yes, Moses provided for alimony. Okay? It's after the fall. (laughs) It is what it is. All right? He protected the woman. That whole, if she gets divorced again or if she becomes a widow, the first husband can't take her back. Why? Because in many cases, that would lead to even greater abuse because of past resentment, because of past bitterness, because she's now damaged goods, so he can do whatever he wants with her. So there's protections in there for the wife. Here are a bunch of biblical scholars, the Pharisees, experts in the law of Moses, Experts in the wisdom literature of David and Solomon. Experts in the book of the prophets. They called it the book of the twelve. These are people who pour over and study and study and study and study God's word. And what are they debating? When's it legal to get a divorce? Let me translate that a little bit better. Here's, here's what the question really comes down to. When can I get away with getting a divorce? When can I get a divorce and God say, oh, that's all right. Instead of being concerned with seeking to grow in holiness, the Pharisees made their life about understanding how close a person could get to the line before they cross over and become unrighteous. That's the attitude that Jesus says caused God to tell Moses to permit a certificate of divorce. Because we will go as far as we can go, or as far as we think we can go, before we cross that line. That's the hardness of our hearts. Where is the line of the law so that I can know that I'm still righteous because I didn't cross it. I once heard a youth minister talking at a conference about how often he gets questioned by the the youth, the teenagers in his youth group. And they would come and they would ask him the question, how far can we go before it's too far? speaking of their relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend. How far can we go before it's too far? That's the wrong question. That's, you know, it might be my fear of heights, but I do not walk up to the edge of a precipice and say, how far can I stick my toes over before I fall? But that's our way, isn't it? That's exactly what we do. We seek to find what we can get away with before we're going to be held to account. Because of our sinfulness, the law allowed for divorce. And it provided a means of protection for the wife. She still had her dignity. She still could be legally married to someone else. Because as long as she had that certificate of divorce, she was not considered adulterous. 
while society may look down on her, the law protected her. But Jesus says, that's not God's will. In other words, the question that we need to be asking is not, how close to the edge can I get before I fall off? The question that we need to be asking is, how far away can I get from that edge? God's design is far away. Husbands, you remember God's command? Love our wives like Jesus loved the church, right? That's that's the command to husbands. Sacrificially, giving her everything, even to the point of laying his glory aside and dying on the cross to sanctify the church and wash her by his blood. That's how we're supposed to, husbands, that's how you're supposed to love your wives. Does that sound like how close to the edge can I get without falling off? No. And wives, just because this passage deals with husbands divorcing their wives, we do live in the 21st century, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring wives into this because Paul did in, in the book of Ephesians. And he said, wives, the command to you is to submit yourselves to your own husband as unto the Lord. It doesn't give you a condition. It doesn't say unless he's a butthead. It doesn't say unless he's abusive. It doesn't say unless he's just ugly. It says submit yourself to your husband. Yes, it's a whole lot easier if he's doing his part, but that's not in there. But it's to be submitted to your husband as unto the Lord. In submitting to your husband, you're submitting to Jesus, because this is God's will. As the church submits to the leadership of Jesus, right? So (laughs) Jesus says, as you go, make disciples of all people. And the church says, yeah. I'm not really feeling that today. That's not how this works, right? The picture of the church is the picture of the bride and the groom. This is God's plan for marriage. So Jesus is basically asking the question, where, when, why, and how Would God ever, ever say that the dissolution of that relationship is okay? He wouldn't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. When would God ever okay the church breaking off from her relationship with Christ? There's a word for that. It's apostasy. And when Jesus talks about it in the book of Revelation, when he talks about the churches that have left their first love, it's not in a good way. <laughs> it's, he's not saying, oh, that's okay. He's saying, y'all need to turn around because you done screwed up. Now, Jesus does permit the exception for cases of sexual immorality. Now, you want to talk broad terms. Jesus didn't make my life any easier in this passage. 
because the word that he uses there that's translated as sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It is the same word that we get the word pornography from, but it's much, much broader than pornography. Literally, it translates, and it is used in the Greek in this time as any illicit sexual behavior. If you think that it might fit that definition, it probably does. Everything except for the union of husband and wife qualifies. But now here's the thing. That same word is used in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is used as a metaphor for another word that is pretty simple to nail down. And that word is idolatry. Sexual immorality is a metaphor for idolatry. Idolatry and adultery are linked together in the Old Testament. That makes it pretty clear what Jesus thinks of the sanctity of marriage. And Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife for any other reason and marries somebody else, then it's what? It's adultery. Straight up. Now, before I get to the, uh, the, 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 the disciples' response had to be spoken by Peter. I'm just going to throw that out there. But before I get there, I want to pause for just a second here. Okay? Because the, the one thing that Jesus does not say about divorce, that he does not say about this particular sin, is that it's unforgivable. There is only one sin that Jesus ever calls unforgivable, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is sin. Just like going to the buffet and eating yourself into a coma is sin. Just like beating your spouse is sin. Just like drinking yourself into unconsciousness is sin. They are all sin. But just like any other sin, it is one for which we should repent and receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Period. Paul does warn us that that we should not presume on Jesus' forgiveness. We we shouldn't say... um, there, there's a phrase out there, to err is human, to forgive divine, right? You ever heard that before? To, to err is human, right? I'm just a person, I'm going to screw up, right? To forgive is God's prerogative. There are people who've taken that to say that's, God, God, that's God's job. He's obligated. No. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Bad. Bad teaching, Okay. God is not obligated to forgive us for anything. But in Christ, the debt has been paid. We should seek every possible means to reconcile. Think about this for just a second. What have we been looking at in chapter 18 
for the last month and a half. It's been how people deal with each other, right? How we deal with somebody who sins against us, we go to them one-on-one and we seek that reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, then we take witnesses to seek that reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, then we take the church to seek that reconciliation. It's all about going to the lost sheep, right? So what does Jesus expect us to do? If there's a conflict between husband and wife, to solve it, right? You know, it's that little pithy uh, uh, picture that goes around on Facebook about the, the old couple, you know, they've been married for 60 some odd years and somebody asked them, how did you make it last so long? And they said, that's easy. We grew up in an era where if something broke, you fix it. You don't throw it away, right? There ain't nothing easy about fixing it. Fixing the TV is easier. Not necessarily less dangerous. There's a lot of voltage in those things. We should seek reconciliation with the one that we are married to. Sometimes that's impossible. And this is where reality of life sets in. Sometimes it's impossible. Which one of you, if I told you to step up here and jump off the edge of this platform, could flap your arms and fly to the back of the room? It's impossible, right? Yeah, the little caveat to that, everything's possible with Christ, is if it's within His will. If it was within His will for me to fly, I'd have been made a bird. Not a bird brain. Sometimes it's impossible to reconcile. Just like with that person who sins against us that we're supposed to go to, why did Jesus tell us that if they won't, if they won't repent, then you take witnesses, and if they won't repent, then you bring it before the church, and if they don't repent, then you treat them as an unbeliever, right? Because sometimes people are just that hard-hearted. And all the time, they're that hard-headed. And sometimes it's not just impossible. Sometimes it's dangerous to seek that kind of reconciliation. And that's where abuse comes in and, and all those sorts of things. There are some times where the right answer may be separation for a person's safety. Okay? When that happens, we have forgiveness in Christ. Now, starting in verse 10, like I said, this had to be voiced by Peter. Because Jesus answers the Pharisees, why did Moses command us to to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said, he allowed it because you're a bunch of knuckleheads. Right? And now the disciples pipe up. Well, if if the only reason that divorce is allowed is sexual immorality, and, and basically what you're saying is that the husband is stuck with the wife no matter what, then it's probably better off to stay single, isn't it? If I were Jesus, every time the disciples speak up, thank you for illustrating my point. Because that's exactly what they just did. It's that hardness of heart. What do you mean if you're stuck with her? That's terrible. That's horrible. You're stuck with her. If your approach to marriage is you're stuck with her, 
then yeah, it's probably better for you to be single. <laughs> the marriage is supposed to be representative of Christ in the church. Can you imagine Jesus sitting on the throne? Well, if the church is going to be like that, I might as well just be single. No, that's not how this works. That is the point of the marriage relationship. It is not good that man should be alone. We need each other. We grow together. We challenge each other. We can persevere through the foolish and most often sinful things that we do to each other. When the disciples say that it's probably better to be single, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't say to them, you just illustrated my point. He says, this isn't something that everybody can do. There are those who are eunuchs from birth and those who are eunuchs that have been made that way by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. Paul makes a similar case in 1 Corinthians, not with the weight of command, but Paul says, I wish that everybody were like me, single. Why? Because then they could devote themselves to the ministry more fully. But then Paul says, I'm not stupid enough to think that everybody can remain single because we weren't made that way. It's not good for man to be alone. That word there for eunuch, again, this is, this is the problem with the English language. That word there that is translated as eunuch can also mean somebody who is unwed for whatever reason. Okay, when we think of a eunuch, we think of somebody who's missing pieces. After 25 years of marriage, I can tell you that if I were single, I would be missing pieces. I would be missing a big piece. So Jesus says there are those who are eunuchs from birth, who are unable to be married, or just not built for it, sometimes literally. There are those who are made to be single, to be eunuchs, right? Whether that be because, as Jesus is talking, because of slaves, uh, many male slaves underwent surgical modification in order to keep them under control, right? Uh, the... the uh, Egyptian eunuch that Philip met as he was traveling back and Philip was told, go run alongside that chariot. And he heard the eunuch reading. He was a person who was in a position of authority. And the understanding was that if certain body parts are removed, they are less likely to steal from the treasury. So he was most likely the treasurer. He was the the secretary of the treasury for Egypt. And he was trustworthy and reliable because his passions would not lead him astray because the necessary components were missing. Jesus says that some are made that way because of other people. And then there are those who are single for the sake of devoting themselves to the ministry. 
you know, I have met a lot of people who are single through very late periods in their life. Many of them, especially within the church, have expressed disappointment at that fact. That they would rather have been married because that's what they've seen from their friends and family members in the church. Our friend Miss Lynn, who passed back in December, was one of those people. She never wed. Wasn't that she was opposed to the idea, she just never met the right guy. And well, I can tell you that Lynn was most absolutely, certainly, and positively a sinner. The time and energy she would have spent on a husband was poured into the life of hundreds, if not thousands, of people through her ministry. So when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, not everybody can receive this saying, that it would be better to be single. You know what he's saying? He's saying the same thing Paul said. I wish everybody could be. Because then they would be devoted to the ministry. But not everybody can be. So those of us who aren't in that category... Our job is to honor Christ through that relationship. And I know that's hard. I know there's all kinds of circumstances and issues and, and everything else. This, this is, there is nothing about the Christian life that doesn't take work. Nothing. Okay? And I know it's against our human nature too. I know that because it's always told to us in the form of a command. <laughs> it was really like a light bulb came on the first time I was reading the Bible and I realized that the only time we're ever commanded to do something in Scripture is because we wouldn't normally do it. Why are husbands called to sacrificially love their wives? Commanded to sacrificially love their wives? Because we won't. <laughs> That's not my nature. Why aren't wives commanded to love their husbands? Because wives will. We may be dumb as a bag of hammers. They're still going to love us. However, that submission part, not so much. Why are children commanded to obey their parents? <laughs> and the people said, amen. All right. So, the, we have to work to show that relationship to the world. If we're married, then we need to honor Christ with our marriage as much as possible, as much as we can, by following what Scripture tells us to do. If you're single, if you're one of those people who can receive that message that Jesus said, we need to devote our lives into sharing the gospel message and discipling people where we are and not be worried about it. Period. We have a command to make disciples of all people wherever we go. That's what we need to be concerned with.
and definitely stay away from the arguments of what can I get away with. That's just bad theology. 